0: listening to an audio sermon from hope bible church Kelowna. for more information about our church please visit hopekelowna.ca. lord god worthy is your name above all names may your name be praised and lifted up high in our homes this morning and in our hearts in our workplaces, in our relationships with our family, Lord. May it be the name that that drives us, that leads us, that refines us. May your name be lifted high in the way that we care for each other, in the way that we worship. May it infuse every part of our life that we might be beacons of your hope to this world. May you receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. You are our King. You are our God and our Savior, and we love you. In your name we pray, amen. Good morning and welcome to church this morning. Um, We are going to be uh, talking about something that is probably one of the most powerful yet often unused tools and and realities of the gospel. Today, we're going to be talking about being forgiven and forgiving others. You see, forgiveness can free us from some of the deepest anxieties and worries and stresses of life, and it heals. It heals our broken relationship between us and God, and it releases us from any hang-ups or hurts that we hold against anyone else. You see, there are so many enslaving feelings that stop us dead in our tracks, that stop us in the middle of our weeks and in the middle of our lives, in the middle of our day, that consume us. They consume us with guilt. They consume us with the idea that we are uh, not loved by God. We get concerned about whether or not God has forgiven us. Or maybe if something has been done wrong against you, maybe you just can't even think or focus on what the task is at hand because you're just so... Angry, you're just so distracted, you're so frustrated, you're just so defeated by how much you've been hurt. Well, whether you're there right now or whether you're journeying with someone through that, the reality is you can have freedom from these things. You can have freedom from these thoughts and these feelings, and it's found through forgiveness. It's found through having forgiveness from the Lord, and then it's found in giving. Uh, forgiving others. So this morning we're going to go into God's word and we're going to unearth the power of forgiveness and clear up any of these distortions that the world has made that we understand now after this morning what forgiveness really is and what the power of it really is in our relationship with God and in our relationship with others. So would you turn with me to Matthew 18, verse 21 to 35. Matthew 18 is a beautiful chapter, a wonderful chapter. I encourage you to take your time to read through it. In fact, I would say Matthew 18 is probably one of those incredible new believers teaching packages, really. Um, In the beginning of Matthew 18, the disciples are fighting over who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says uh, in verse 4 of Matthew 18, he says, it will be the one with humility like a child. And he then illustrates this principle in many situations that Christians should expect to see, many trials and temptations that those part of the church will face. Things like discipling immature believers or even personal temptation, how to have humility in personal temptation or how to have humility in church discipline. At the end of it all, Peter, after hearing all of this about church discipline and all these things, Peter asks a very interesting question. Leave it to Peter. He says this in verse 21. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Read with me in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees and imploring him, he said, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and he pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And this unforgiving servant refused and went and put this fellow servant, he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him, the unforgiving servant. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Jesus breaks here and just says, so also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's a very um, poignant passage. Um, Peter, when he speaks at the beginning, he asks, how many times do I have to forgive? That's where this all really stems out of. Peter's been talking about humility. He's heard Jesus talk about humility. And now he's having to hear about how many times. And so Peter says to him, how many times? Seven times? And the reason why Peter says seven times is because the Jewish leaders of the time that were teaching said that if you forgave three times, um, that you no, longer needed to, you no longer needed to forgive anyone. And Peter was trying to just double that number and increase a little bit on top of it even, but Jesus takes it further. Now the ESV says 70 times seven, and other translations say 77 But the point Jesus is making is not, it's not, oh, oh, 67, 68. Hey, listen, Susie, you're at 68. You better watch. That's not the point here. The point Peter, the point to Peter that Jesus is making, the point that Jesus is making is this, an innumerable, innumerable amount. 70 times if the person sins and repents 70 times, forgive them 70 times. If they repent, if they sin and then repent 70 times 7, you have to forgive them 70 times 7. It just keeps going on. As many times as they repent is as many times as you shall forgive them. And in this story, we, we hear of this thing of talents. And, and, and it's not necessarily a way that we measure money today, but... Um, talents of the time. It says 10,000 talents is what that first servant owed. 10,000 talents. Talents were a a unit of measurement. They were a measurement of actually the weight of a certain precious metal. You know, uh, in mob movies, if you watch this type of of stuff, but in mob movies, the drug lords and whoever, the, the bad guys, you know you're at a certain level of wealth when you stop counting your bills and you start weighing them. This is the type of money we're talking about here. This is the type of money that was owed. Like comparably to today's wages, it would be billions of dollars. I don't know if you heard that, billions. Not M, but B, billions. Okay, billions of dollars was what was owed. And a denarii, which is what the other servant, fellow servant owed him, uh, was uh, just a day's wage. So 100 denarii, 100 denarii is just... A hundred days wage. So we're comparing billions of dollars to whatever even a hundred days of wage is. Um, And for you, it might be different from somebody else listening. But even then, these are not comparable. These are monumentally different amounts of debt. And then at the very end, Jesus points out, and he, he stops and he says this sobering reality. He says, my father will do to every one of you if my, this is what my Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And this is not a one-off thing that Jesus says. This is not the only time that Jesus talks about forgiveness in this way. Um, if you look, forgiveness in Scripture, there's so many passages that you can look at. Matthew 6, 12, which is the Lord's Prayer. It says, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Luke 6, 37 Forgive and you will be forgiven. Jesus said that. Luke 17:4. And if he sins against you 7 times in the day and turns to you 7 times saying I repent, you must forgive him. Mark 11:25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And Colossians 3.13, Forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. This idea of forgiveness uh, is not some uh, random idea in here, but this is something throughout the New Testament that Jesus is teaching. You see, this idea is that God's forgiveness of us is dependent on our forgiveness of others. It's quite sobering. It tells us that we just can't sit in a place, as Christians, as believers, in a place of unforgiveness. And for the unbelievers out there, you can't sit there either. The reality is, though, that so many of us have been hurt. So many of us have been there. We are there. We're prone to being there in a place of unforgiveness. So many of us have held on to bitterness or a hurt or a hatred. So many of us will face really difficult pains, loss, and injustice. Because you know what? Believing in Jesus doesn't mean you're going to be immune to abuse. It doesn't mean you're going to be immune from bullying or adultery or abandonment doesn't mean that you will not face these things if you follow Jesus. All it means is that you will be with the one who has the power to get you through those things. And the power to get you through those things is found in his forgiveness. Firstly, we have to understand how God's God's forgiveness of us. And then from that, we will have the power to forgive others. If you want this power... Let's lean into this passage. So today, we're going to break down four steps to being forgiven and forgiving others. The first step is this. Relish God's love for you. Relish God's... I love that word, relish. It's really not a word I use often, but as I heard that this week, is that was what was on my heart and mind. I just loved it. I I don't even like relish. And and relish, the food, is different from the verb relish, but... um, The purpose here is just, I love this idea of just soaking in and enjoying and saturating in God's love for us. In the passage, you would see this in the fact that the master had pity on him. Verse 27, it says, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. You see, the servant missed this. The servant missed the heart of the master. He didn't grasp and savor what the forgiveness the king gave represented. All he saw was a get-out-of-jail-free card. He didn't see that the master had pity on him. And this is so many of us. We've heard the gospel. We've heard the story of Jesus. We've read the Bible. I've talked to so many atheists who go, I've read the whole Bible but you've ignored the heart of the God who made it all happen. You see, when we read scripture, when we hear the gospel, we need to not only see the verdict that has been rendered over us, but also more deeply and more wondrously, the heart from which that verdict comes. We don't need to just see the result of a ticket to heaven or eternal life, but we need to see the cause that brought those things to us. What caused God to send his son? What moved Jesus to live a perfect life? What motivated Christ to willingly die on his cross? It's God's love for you and for me. There's a song, He loves us, oh how he loves us, oh how he loves us, So oh. I just, I love that line. I, I know that maybe some people are sick of repetitive lyrics. And, and, and things like that. But that line stands out to me because it just reminds me to sit and settle and relish and enjoy and appreciate God's love for me. And an author, an author in an article I read this week said, we need to spend time in God's word and in worship of him until it makes us blush. Until it makes us blush from the affection that he has for us. We need to feel how he sings over us. It's, it's impossible. And I, I really believe this. I think it's impossible to fully understand and to enjoy the forgiveness that he offers until we receive the love that he has for us. This is not a cold and judi- judicial statement. It is an affectionate relationship that he has with us. You know, when, when we are discipling people and talking about the gospel, when you see people go to evangelistic rallies, sometimes we might confuse ourselves or even fool ourselves into thinking that just because we told someone they're forgiven after they've prayed a prayer, that it, like we believe that it's like some kind of fully realized understanding. But the reality is it's only the first The first of many infinite times that they must see and hear and feel this reality. This is why we are not going to stop preaching the gospel here at this church. We are not going to stop talking about Jesus on the cross and God's love for you and how Christ has conquered death and sin for your sake. That is going to be preached every Sunday here at this church. Because... We know that this is something we must see and hear and feel repeatedly. That is discipleship. Discipleship is continually realizing and experiencing and telling others the amazing love our God has for us. There's a movie called Goodwill Hunting, it's a bit of an older one, um, and there's this one really uh, moving scene. And this movie has Robin Williams and Matt Damon, and Robin Williams is a counselor, and he's speaking to Matt Damon, who is kind of this, like, secretive genius, and he's a little bit rough on the edges. But Robin Williams, the counselor, um, Robin Williams finds out that Matt Damon's character had been um, had been abused as a child. And Robin invites him in uh, to acknowledge this pain and and to care for him and... And what he ends up doing is he's speaking to Matt Damon and he just says to him, repeatedly, he says, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And at first, Matt Damon's character, he just kind of brushes it off and goes, okay. And then as it continues, he acknowledges it and he says, okay, thanks for saying that. You know, I, I get it and he's just trying to appease the character, Robin Williams' character. And then as Robin Williams' character kind of approaches him even closer and closer and he continues to say this, Matt Damon's character is starting to get defensive and aggressive and like why are you saying this, man? Like what do you want to what do you want from me? And then as Robin Williams continues to sh- share this is it's not your fault. He shows in in Matt Matt Damon's demeanor just breaks, and he begins to cry, and he weeps, and he's, and he's held, and he, and he's weeping because he's weeping because he never really believed that, and he's beginning to. Maybe that's you today. Maybe even though you've heard it before that God loves you, maybe today you need to hear it on repeat. Maybe you need to hear it on repeat until it gets past that rough exterior, until it gets past your defenses and it gets past your defensiveness and it gets to your soul and to your heart and it doesn't sound like a cliche anymore, but it sounds like the most life-changing reality for you. God loves you. I don't know if you've heard this today and I don't know who's around you maybe you need to just stand and stand and look at someone and just hold them for a second and just say god loves you you need to savor in this truth you need to relish god's love for you You need to surround yourself with people who will remind you of God's love for you. That's what small groups are for. Small groups are for you to be in with a group of people, not who compliment you and tell you how lovable you are, but real people who know how unlovable you are and still tell you just how much God loves you. This is why we teach you to abide in God's word daily. Have God time. This is why we are to meditate and saturate our hearts with the truth of who God is and how much he loves us because sin will cause you to become calloused and disbelieve that God cares about you so much. Let his word break through to you this morning and comfort your soul. Don't wallow in your guilt. But rather, and this gives us to our second point, recount your forgiven debt. Relish in God's love for you and then recount your forgiven debt. Let your sinfulness and your temptations, let them humble you. Remember, the chapter of Matthew 18 is all about humility because pride is what keeps us from wanting to acknowledge our sin. There's a there's a really subtle belief within each and every one of us to think that it would be better for us to pretend our sinfulness isn't that bad. As if it would be as if we would be better living our lives not knowing, as if we would live our lives differently not knowing just how insidious and destructive our sinfulness is. We all do this. We try to ignore the effect and the disgusting nature of our sin. And we do this. We try and do this by counting up all the good that we do, all the wonderful things, and give ourselves pats on the back. Or we compare ourselves to somebody else. Oh, I'm now with that guy. That's good. And then after that, we call it a day. Maybe if we focus on all our good and we point out all the bad, maybe I don't have to face this big mound of sinfulness and temptation. I don't have to be humbled by it. We try and we try. We try to rebrand sin as, as cool or little or not that big of a deal. Or we put a silver lining on it. We need to let our sinfulness, we need to let our uh, temptations humble us. Um, this kind of reminds me of, uh, of how people go shopping sometimes. We all know someone who shops like this. Here's a picture for you. <laughs> me when I get paid and my favorite store is still having a sale. Just running off to go and get that. Oh, forget whatever's behind me. I'm getting that sale. Or uh, or this, uh, hurry, there's a sale. You can just see the excitement in this little girl's face. We all know someone like this. They go to the store. They see a big sale number, like 70% off or 80% off. And they buy something and they say something like, I basically just made $80. Um, <clears throat> the funny thing is that you, you actually just spent $20, but if you see this sale, you've convinced yourself that I've actually made $80, and, 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 and the funny thing is you see this sale and you go, I didn't know I needed it until I saw that sale, and then once I saw the sale, I knew how much I needed that, and we're just, we fool ourselves with this stuff, trying to look at all the silver linings and count up all the good and, 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 count and, and keep track of all the bad of something else. Just take a step back. You didn't make any money at all. You still spent $20. And let's be honest, a lot of the time when we're spending that $20, it's on something we probably didn't even really need. And this is the mistake that we make with sinfulness. We ignore the actual cost. Because we want to skip to the idea of the benefits. We want to count how good we are or, or... or focus on how bad someone else is. But the benefits aren't measurable. They aren't measurable without acknowledging the actual cost. Yes. Yes, Jesus Christ has saved your life and has saved my, mine as well. And we will not stop agreeing with that. We will not stop saying that is good news. Salvation is good news. But we have to remember that salvation came at a cost look at this passage. He owed billions. He owed billions. In this story, the servant is, is yes, firstly ignorant of why the king forgave him out of pity, but then he goes on and he's even more ignorant of how much he's been forgiven. He he just moves on and ignores it. Uh, The fact that the servant even suggests he would pay the the master back demonstrates how ignorant he really was. This was not an amount that could be paid back, even with a lifetime of work. Sending that servant and his family to be be slaves was actually a pretty generous offer, a very merciful one. Yet he goes and tries to negotiate. Have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. There's no way you could pay that back. That's billions of dollars. to negotiate even that punishment and ask for a a second chance, that should have offended the king. Remember, this is a debt to the king. (laughs) If you robbed the king, you disrespected him. If you robbed the king, you dishonored the kingdom. If you robbed the king, you offended the royal name. We must see our sin in this way. We must not see our sin as simply a, an act or a choice being done, just another thing we've done, uh, something to be trifle or, or weak or not, not paid attention to. We must see our sin as an offense to the king, to our creator, to our God. God is holy and one sin, just one sin against him isn't comparable to a sin against a fellow believer. Because every sin against a fellow believer is still a monumental sin against the God, our creator. Every sin is forgiven. Every sin that we've ever had forgiven is a direct offense against the king. You and I were made by him to give continual glory to him and it's lost and it's squandered on selfish, proud ambitions and decisions when we sin. We must recount our forgiven debt. Even if this story was slightly different, or different in any way, even if the servant forgave his fellow servant of a hundred denarii, yeah, that would have been a nicer ending. I mean, it wouldn't have made Jesus' point, but it would have been a nicer ending, but it still pales in comparison to how much he was forgiven. Just think for a second. Even if you and I forgave every single person that ever did anything wrong to us, it's still pales in comparison to the amount to which god has forgiven us we must recount how much we've been forgiven the gospel is made most clear and most poignant in the in in the testimony of what we've been forgiven it's not made clearer. It's not most effective because we use our gifts. Oh, here, let me tell you about Jesus and look how talented I am. I can juggle. Or look how, uh, look, let me tell you about Jesus by, by doing nice things for you. You know what is the most effective demonstration of, of God? The most um, amazing victory is the amount to which he has forgiven me. I can have all the talent. I can have all the sacrifice in the world. And those can be used for his glory. But I tell you, nothing tells the amazing truth of who my God is as much as the amount to which he has forgiven me. See, some people get stifled by guilt because they think of this um, amount of sin as something that they still carry. The amount of forgiveness we've received shouldn't stifle us. It should renew us. Every sin forgiven was costly. Yes, but to God, it was worth it. (laughs) Because he loves you and he loves how it causes you to love him. So don't wallow in your guilt because that is an offense to the price he paid. And don't walk in ignorance because that is also an offense to the price he paid. Rather, celebrate him. Celebrate him for the sin he covered. Because he covered them all. Look at this picture uh, somebody posted on Facebook recently. Sin, shame, regret, past mistakes, unforgiveness, hurt, anger. Jesus paid it all. All of it. The grand total, how much you owe? Zero. <laughs> I love this picture. We, we get to realize how much has been done for us. Once we realize how much has been done for us, that's when we're finally enabled to forgive others. But here's also where it gets pretty difficult. We have to relate to the temptations of others. First, we needed to relish in God's love, and then we needed to recount our debt that's been forgiven, but now we must relate to the temptations of others. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's where it can get really painful. Because when someone hurts us, sometimes the most difficult thing to do is to relate to them. To us, they did something we might never do. They've crossed a line that we would never cross. But forgiving others requires overcoming this temptation. Requires overcoming the temptation to demonize people who have hurt us. To act as if they are undeserving of empathy. We we see this temptation. We see this temptation even in the little things. Just in kids playing on the playground. We see this temptation. We've all seen kids um, and, and we can read their face. You can see their thoughts pretty easily on their face. And, and Becca and I love watching our kids' faces and emotions, reactions to the world around them. And our daughter, Diana, could have one of the most dramatic faces I've ever seen. Look at that face in reaction to Santa. Like, Merry Christmas, Santa. This is what you're going to get. Or this next picture. Um, yes, this is, we, like, here's the thing. I would love to tell you why she looks this way. I just know that this is a daily occurrence multiple times a day. She's just angry at something and she'll grunt. Oh, now she's sad. She wants mommy to pick her up and and you can see it on her face. Just get me up here. Or in the next photo, yes, probably probably has seen someone do something on the beach and she's like, oh, that's embarrassing. Wouldn't want to be that person. Or here, this was just at our church picnic this past week. This is her. Somebody, I think, came to come and say hello to her. And she's like, what do you want? uh is there i don't think there are any other photos after this um but uh this is the reality is when it comes to kids you can just see it on their face and and there's there's one thing that we can see often happen on the playground that you can see happen just even amongst siblings when one of them gets hurt or pushed in a way that kind of feels embarrassing or unfair what do they do some of them will just break down and cry and say that wasn't unfair but others you'll see it in them they'll lash out, they'll lash out it way worse. They look at this and they're like, this is an opportunity. I'm going to get you. You push me a little, I'm going to push you more. And you just see it escalate. Uh, This is the temptation within all of us. You see it happening on kids. They move from sadness. They're, oh, I'm sad because someone's pushed me and that's not very nice. And then they are shocked because I can't believe that something like this would happen. Like they pushed me, that's wrong. And they usually look to mom and dad and they're like, ma, aren't you going to do something about this? And we kind of watch and go, oh, let's see what you do about this. And then they go from that, from the, this injustice to looking for an opportunity to get back at the person, and you see them. You could just almost catch them right in the act of, like, I'm innocently being hurt, to I'm shocked from being unjustly treated, and then, like, okay, I've made a plan, and I'm going to kill you. Or, or whatever, you know, not kill you, because they're just kids, and they're cute. But um, this is what happens within each and every one of us. We, we turn we start getting worked up, and, and, and so in this passage, what we see is we see that um, the servant, the unforgiving servant, he didn't see his others, this other servant as a fellow servant, as he's described. He's a fellow servant. He doesn't see this, him this way, um, and this is a key turn in the passage. He has no empathy towards him. The unforgiving servant looked down on the fellow servant. He treated him with disdain and he hated him, because the unforgiving servant forgot who he had a debt to. He had a debt to the king. It wasn't just a fellow servant, yet the king made an effort to empathize and pity the unforgiving servant, but you don't see that change of heart in the unforgiving servant. Instead, he demonizes his fellow servant. He says, oh, you've got something back at me. I'm going to get you harder, He saw his fellow servant as less than, and for that reason, he couldn't see clearly. The unforgiving servant forgot just how easily he himself got caught up in debt. He forgot just how easily he lost track of the money being spent and how much money he really owed. He had no empathy for his fellow servant. See, this is why, this is why we must relate to the temptations of others. This is really the big difference that made Jesus stand out. This is why Jesus was so approachable. Because when Jesus looked at people, they could see the empathy in his eyes. This is why he stands out amongst all other beliefs as the clear and obvious Savior of the world, the only way, the truth, and the life. It's because he was tempted. Jesus was tempted. He knows and has seen how enticing sin is. He empathizes with us. Hebrews 4.15, look at this with me. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We must pray for God's help to see others and to look on others the way that Jesus looked at people. We must pray for more empathetic hearts. You and I know, personally, just how enticing sin is. We know because we've all succumbed to it. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. People will hurt you, but you've also hurt people too. You've sinned as well. You've hurt people from ignorance. You've hurt them uh, because you were lashing out from your own pain. You've hurt people because you've demonized people or, and uh, you've got lashed out on them. Or maybe you've even hurt people because maybe you deal with an addiction. There's so many reasons why we are tempted towards sin and why we succumb to it. And you know what? I want to tell you, people who hurt you, they hear, hurt you because of Ignorance. They hurt you because they're lashing out from pain. They hurt you because they've demonized you. They hurt you because they're struggling through an addiction and on and on and on. Every way in which the world and, and Satan and the flesh tempts us, it tempts the people around us. And we must not demonize those who have hurt us. We must empathize with them. Now, before I go much further, I really want to clarify something because forgiveness is a tough topic. Forgiving others doesn't mean justifying what they've done. Forgiveness simply pushes us to empathize their temptations and their weaknesses, just like Jesus did for us. You see, when Parker makes a bad choice and he does something wrong and he sins, I often understand why he did it. And I get why he did it. I I empathize with why he did it. There was something he wanted or he felt misunderstood. He's frustrated I get that, but it doesn't mean I let him off the hook either. Just because I understand him doesn't mean he doesn't receive discipline. If we want to hold people accountable properly to the sin that they've committed, we must see them as a person like us. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Jesus was not excusing their injustice. He was having pity on their ignorance. Forgiving others doesn't mean justifying what they've done. God forgave us because he has a love, because of his love for us. Forgiving others, again, I'm going to say this again. Forgiving others does not mean justifying what they've done. God forgave us because of his love for us. But justice, the justice was only found because Christ died for us. That's the message of the atonement. That's why God can't just forgive us and call it a day because there would be no justice. Justice needed to be paid and it needed to be paid at the cross. We must make an effort within Christianity to be like Christ in this way, empathizing with the enticement of sin, but yet fleeing and fighting our own temptations. This is the humility part of Matthew 18 that we're talking about. You must be humble enough to recognize that you too have been tempted to sin. And I know when you've been hurt a lot, it's hard to picture that person who's bullied, abused, and hurt you, and abandoned you, to empathize with them. But I'm telling you now, you will have no freedom until you get there. Until you can see them as another fellow human being who has succumbed to the temptation of sin. And this is where we get to that last step. And this is where we start to find f- real freedom. After we've empathized with someone's temptation, we must release them. We must release them from their injustice against us so that they can come to terms with their injustice against God. You must release their debt to you. So you've been empowered and comforted by God's love by relishing in it. You've recounted his forgiveness of your great debt and now you've empathized with others' temptation. But, but the question is really this that Peter asked. Why can't I just hold them right at a distance? Why can't I, why do I have to forgive them over and over again? Why can't I just call it three times, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me thrice, shame on me, is what we would normally think, because at that point, then I'm just inviting them to hurt me, aren't I? Why, why should I let them go free and release them of their debt to me, if that's just going to mean they're going to possibly do something wrong again to me or to someone else? That's, this is the temptation. This is where we get caught. This is where I've been Caught. This is the crux of Peter's concern. And these are really, really heated questions. These are really heated concerns. And the answer is that you need to release these people. You need to release this person from their debt to you because neither of you will be truly free until you've forgiven them. Bitterness is a cold chain that connects you and someone else. When we hold bitterness against someone, it's like we've been chained to them. I'm going to do it this way. You're pivoting your whole life around them. And it's all about, oh, how much much they owe me and how much they need to pay me back and how much they've done wrong. Or when you won't forgive them. They're spending their whole life pivoting their life trying to make you happy and please you and make you feel appeased, and make you feel okay about what they've done wrong. Neither of you are meant to live your lives like that. Neither of you are meant to pivot your whole life around someone in bitterness and unforgiveness. No. You're meant to live for God. You are to revolve your life around Him. And when you are chained in bitterness and unforgiveness to someone, and they are chained to you, Neither of you is centering your life around the Lord. When you hold bitterness, you become entangled in a web, centering your life around someone else. We often buy the lie that holding a grudge will make us feel better or that it will protect us, but this is just not true. Holding a grudge will only suffocate us, and it never liberates us. Holding a grudge against someone is a tremendously powerful way of controlling other people. But forgiving others takes an even greater strength. You see in this passage how the king treated him. Verse 27, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. When we hear the story of the unforgiving servant, we're disappointed. We're disappointed because we really wanted that servant to forgive his fellow servant. We wanted to see this because we want to see the credit be given to the king okay when when that unforgiving servant forgives um his fellow servant we weren't going to go like yeah let's cheer on the the servant who forgave someone else no we're cheering on the king because the way that the king has worked in that servant's life has had a great effect on the rest of the world We wanted to see the credit be given to the king, but the king is robbed the effect of his love when the servant doesn't forgive his fellow servant. And guess what? This is what happens when you and I don't release someone from their debt to us. When we don't release someone from their debt to us, we rob God the value of his forgiving of us. And we rob them the opportunity to give credit to him. If you're forgiving someone to demonstrate your power over them or to demonstrate yourself as better than them, you've missed the point. It's not real forgiveness. If you're trying to, um, if you say, oh, it's not a big deal, I'm just trying to love them into being a better person, you haven't really forgiven them. Jim Elliott was a um, missionary who went to Ecuador to share the gospel. And when he was there, he was killed by a native tribe. And later, his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, his widow, um, well, she came back as a missionary, and, uh, and she returned to Ecuador with her toddler daughter. And when she got to Ecuador, she saw and met the native tribe who had killed her husband. And she went there to tell them that she forgave them. Forgave them for killing her husband. And in this, she was able to tell them and preach them the gospel and demonstrate it. We must forgive people because of how much God has forgiven us. Now, after all of this, there is something, one more thing that must be said. This, if if you're being abused or bullied, if you've been taken advantage of repeatedly. Yes, you must forgive, and I know that sounds incredibly difficult to do, and I tell you that you don't need to do it alone. You can do. You, the church is here to be with you. But once you've forgiven, you also must leave. If you're repeatedly being hurt and taken advantage of, you must leave that situation and seek help, find safety contact us as a church. We want to help you. You're a child of God and you're more valuable than Satan wants you to know. You don't owe your abuser or your bully or your enemy another opportunity to hurt you. But you won't be truly free from them until you forgive them either. Forgiveness is releasing someone from their debt to you. But it doesn't mean you need to invite or enable opportunities to be a victim to them again either. God is just, and he holds all things in his hand. He sees your life, and he chooses discipline, or he chooses grace. He chooses moments of trial and moments of peace. And like the story of Job, he will allow evil to serve his purposes, though. He will not propel its limits, but rather he will restrict its effects. One of the things I love about the Okanagan is that uh, you can go to all sorts of places and have incredible views to see incredible beauty. Whether you're on the west side or you're in lake country, up to Vernon, even in Kelowna or up to the trestles, there's some incredible sights to see the lake, to see the mountains and the wildlife. And you have to be in the right position to have the right perspective on all this beauty. And when it comes to forgiving others, you need to have the right position to have the right perspective on seeing the beauty in your pain, seeing the beauty in the, in the difficulty of how you've been treated. And the position you need to have is you need to be face down on, before the cross need to be before the throne of the Lord, praising him, relishing in God's love for you, recounting of how much you've been forgiven, recognizing his amazing grace only by that perspective. Only through that will you have the perspective to see the beauty in your pain. It's only by the amazing grace of the Lord that you will be able to see clearly how to forgive others and how to receive the forgiveness of God. Let's sing of that amazing grace.